Welcome, everyone, to episode 98 of Ohio Unsolved. I'm your host, Matthew, and in today's episode, we're going to hear about a whole family of serial killers. So let's just get right into the episode. Everyone, sit back, make sure to lock your doors and windows, and get ready for Ohio Unsolved. The Bender family, more well known as the Bloody Benders, were a family of serial killers in Labette County, Kansas, from May 1871 to December 1872. The family supposedly consisted of John Bender and his wife Elvira or Almira, their son John Jr., and their daughter Kate. Contemporary newspaper accounts reported that the Benders' neighbors claimed that John and Kate were actually husband and wife, possibly via a common-law marriage. In 1890, Elvira Hill and her daughter, Mrs. Sarah Davis, both from Michigan, were charged for being Elvira and Kate Bender. They proved that they were not, and they were soon released. Estimates report that the Benders killed at least a dozen travelers, and perhaps as many as 20, before they were discovered. The family's fate remains unknown, with theories ranging from a lynching to a successful escape. Much folklore and legend surround the Benders, making it difficult to separate fact from fiction. In October 1870, Five families of spiritualists homesteaded in and around the township of Osage in northwestern Labette County, approximately seven miles northeast of where Cherryvale was established seven months later. One of these families was John Bender and John Bender Jr., who registered 160 acres of land located adjacent to the Great Osage Trail the only open road for traveling farther west. After a cabin, a barn with a corral, and a well were built, Elvira and Kate arrived in the fall of 1871. The Benders divided their cabin into two rooms with a canvas wagon cover. They used the smaller room at the rear for living quarters and the front room as a general store where they sold dry goods. A crudely drawn, misspelled sign reading, Grocery, spelled G-R-O-C-R-Y, 
indicated a lack of familiarity with English. The front section also contained the kitchen and dining table where travelers could stop for a meal or spend the night. Elvira and Kate also planted a two-acre vegetable garden with and an apple orchard north of the cabin. John Bender Sr. was around 60 years old and he spoke little English. The English that he did speak was very guttural and usually unintelligible. According to the May 23, 1873 edition of the Emporia News, he was identified with the name William Bender. Elvira Benda, Bender was 55 years old. She allegedly spoke little English and was so unfriendly that her neighbors called her a she-devil. John Bender Jr. was around 25 years old and very handsome with auburn hair and a mustache. He spoke English fluently with a German accent and he was prone to laughing aimlessly which led to many to consider him a half-wit. Kate Bender, who was around 23, was cultivated and attractive, and she spoke English well with little accent. A self-proclaimed healer and psychic, she distributed flyers advertising her supernatural powers and her abilities to cure illnesses. She also conducted seances and gave lectures on spiritualism, for which she gained notoriety by advocating free love. Kate's popularity became a large attraction for the Benders Inn. Although the elder Benders kept to themselves, Kate and her brother regularly attended Sunday school in nearby Harmony Grove. The Benders were wildly believed to be German immigrants. No documentation or definitive proof of their relationships to one another or where they were born has ever been found. John Bender Sr was from either Germany, Norway, or the Netherlands, and may have been born John Flickinger. According to contemporary newspapers, Elvira was born Almira Hill Mark, often misreported as Meek, in the Aridonac Mountains. She married Simon Mark, with whom she claimed to have had 12 children. Later, she married William Stephen Griffith. Elvira was also rumored to have murdered several husbands, but none of these rumors were ever proven. Kate was purportedly Elvira's fifth daughter. Some of the Bender's neighbors claimed that John and Kate were not brother and sister, but in fact husband and wife. From those who knew them and have written about the Benders, the old man was a repulsive, hideous brute, without a redeeming trait, dirty, profane, and ill-tempered. Old Mrs. Bender was a dirty old Dutch crone. Her face was a fit picture of the midnight hag that wove the spell murderous ambition about the soul of Macbeth. Young Bender, seen when excited, recalled the grave-robbing hyena at once to mind. Kate proclaimed herself responsible to no one save herself. She professed to, to be a medium of spiritualism and delivered lectures on that subject. In her lectures, she publicly declared that murder might be a dictation for good, that in what the world might deem villainy, 
her soul might read bravery, nobility, and humanity. She advocated free love and denounced all social regulations for the promotion of purity and the prevention of carnality, which she called miserable requirements of the self-constituted society. She maintained carnal relations with her brother and boldly proclaimed her right to do so in the following words found in her lecture manuscript. Shall we confine, our, confine ourselves to a single love and deny our natures their proper sway? Even though it be a brother's passion for his own sister, I say it should not be smothered. Gross. In May 1871, the body of a man named Jones was discovered in Drum Creek with a cut throat and a crushed skull. The owner of the Drum Creek claimed claim was suspected, but no action was taken. In February 1872, the bodies of two men were found with the same injuries as Jones. By 1873, reports of missing people who had passed through the area had become so common that travelers began to avoid the trail. The area was already widely known for horse thieves and villains, and vigilance committees often arrested some for the disappearances, only for them to be later released by the authorities. Many innocent men under suspicion were also run out of the county by these committees. In the winter of 1872, George Newton Longcore left Independent, Independence, Kansas with his infant daughter, Marianne, to resettle in Iowa. They were never seen again. In the spring of 1873, Longcore's former neighbor, Dr. William Henry York, went looking for them, and he questioned homesteaders along the trail. York reached Fort Scott, and on March 9th began the return journey to Independence, but never arrived. York had two brothers, Ed York living in Fort Scott and Colonel Alexander M. York, a Civil War veteran, lawyer, and member of the Kansas State Senate from Independence. Both knew of Williams's travel plans, and when he failed to return, began an all-out search for the missing doctor. Colonel York, leading a company of some 50 men, questioned every traveler along the trail and visited all the area homesteads. On March 28, 1873, Colonel York arrived at the Bender's Inn with a Mr. Johnson, explaining that his brother had gone missing and asking if they had seen him. They admitted Dr. York had stayed with them and suggested the possibility that he had run into trouble with Indians. Colonel York agreed that this was possible and remained for dinner. On April 3rd, Colonel York returned to the inn with armed men after learning that a woman had fled the inn after Elvira Bender had threatened her with knives. Elvira allegedly could not understand English while the younger Benders denied the claim. When York repeated the claim, Elvira became, in, became enraged, saying the woman was a witch who had cursed her coffee and ordered the men to leave her house revealing for the first time that, quote, her sense of the English language was much better than was let on, 
before York left, Kate asked him to return alone the following Friday night, and she would use her clairvoyant abilities to help him find his brother. The men with York were convinced that the Benders and a neighboring family, the Roaches, were guilty and wanted to hang them all, but York insisted that evidence must be found first. Around the same time, neighboring communities began to make accusations that the Osage community was responsible for the disappearances, and the Osage Township arranged a meeting in the Harmony Grove Schoolhouse. Seventy-five locals attended the meeting, including Colonel York and both John Bender and John Bender Jr. After discussing the disappearances, including that of William York, they agreed to obtain a warrant to search every homestead between Big Hill Creek and Drum Creek. Despite York's strong suspicions regarding the Benders since his visit several weeks earlier, no one had watched them, and it was not noticed for several days that they had fled. Three days after the township meeting, Billy Toll was driving cattle past the Bender property when he noticed that the inn was abandoned and the farm animals were unfed. Billy reported the fact to the township trustee, but due to inclement weather, several days lapsed before the abandonment could be investigated. The township trustee called for volunteers and several hundred turned out to form a search party that included Colonel York. When the party arrived at the inn, they found the cabin empty of food, clothing, and personal possessions. A bad odor was noticed and traced to a trap door underneath a bed nailed shut. After opening the trap, the party found clotted blood on the floor of the empty room underneath, six feet deep and seven feet square at the top by three feet square at the bottom. They broke up the stone slab floor with sledgehammers but found no bodies and determined that the smell was from blood that had soaked into the soil. The men then physically lifted the cabin and moved it to the side to dig underneath it, but no bodies were found. They then probed the ground around the cabin with a metal rod, especially in the disturbed soil of the vegetable garden and orchard where Dr. York's body was found later that evening, buried face down with his feet barely below the surface. The probing continued until midnight, with another nine suspected grave sites marked before the men were satisfied that they had found them all and retired for the night. The next morning, another eight bodies were found in seven of the nine suspected graves, while one was found in the well, along with several body parts. All but one had their heads bashed with a hammer and throats cut, and newspapers reported that all were indecently mutilated. The body of a young girl was found with no injuries sufficient to cause death. It was speculated that she had been strangled or buried alive. A Kansas newspaper reported that the crowd was so incensed after finding the bodies that a friend of the benders named Brockman, who was among the onlookers, was hanged from a beam in the inn until unconscious 
revived, interrogated, then hanged again. After the third hanging, they released him and he staggered home. As one who was drunken or deranged, a Roman Catholic prayer book was found in the house with notes inside written in German, which were later translated. The text read, Joanna Bender, born July 30, 1848. John Gibbart came to America on July 1, 18... Big Slaughter Day, Jan 8th, and held departed. Word of the murders spread quickly, and more than 3,000 people, including reporters from as far away as New York City and Chicago, visited the site. The Bender cabin was destroyed by souvenir hunters who took everything, including the bricks that lined the cellar and the stones lining the well. State Senator Alexander York offered a $1,000 reward for the family's arrest. On May 17th, Kansas Governor Thomas A. Osborne offered a $2,000 reward for the apprehension of all four. It is conjectured that when a guest stayed at the Bender's Bed and Breakfast Inn, the host would give the guest a seat of honor at the table that was positioned over a trap door into the cellar, with the victim's back to the curtain. Kate would distract the guest while John Bender or his son came from behind the curtain and struck the guest on the right side of the skull with a hammer. One of the women would cut the victim's throat to ensure death, and the body was then dropped through the trap door. Once in the cellar, the body would be stripped and later buried somewhere on the property, often in the orchard. Although some of the victims were wealthy, others carried little of value, and it was surmised that the benders had killed them simply for the sheer thrill. Testimony from people who had stayed at the Benders Inn and managed to escape before they could be killed appeared to support the presumed execution method of the Benders. William Pickering said that when he had refused to sit near the wagon cloth because of the stains on it, Kate Bender had threatened him with a knife, whereupon he fled the premises. A Catholic priest, Father Paul Ponzi, I'm going to butcher this last name, Ponziglone, P-O-N-Z-I-G-L-I-O-N-E, claimed to have seen one of the Bender men concealing a large hammer, at which point he became uncomfortable and quickly departed, making the excuse that he needed to tend to his horse. The Bender family sold stolen goods such as horses, saddles, clothes, and other possessions under the guise that people who spent the night were unable to pay and would pay with goods. At another time, a Mrs. Fitz, while sitting at dinner, became uneasy and sensed a muffled movement behind the canvas. Kate issued a command, but before anything could happen, the terrified Mrs. Fitz fled. Two men who had traveled to the inn to experience Kate Bender's psychic powers stayed for dinner but refused to sit at the table next to the cloth, instead preferring to eat their meal at the main shop counter. 
Kate then became abusive toward them, and shortly afterward, the Bender men emerged from behind the cloth. At this point, the customers felt uneasy and decided to leave, a move that almost certainly saved their lives. More than a dozen bullet holes were found in the roof and sides of the cabin. The media speculated that some of the victims had attempted to fight back after being hit with the hammer. Detectives following wagon tracks discovered the Bender's wagon, abandoned with a starving team of horses with one of the mares slain, just outside the city limits of Thayer, 12 miles north of the inn. It was confirmed that the family had bought tickets on the Lavenworth, Lawrence, and Galveston Railroad for Humboldt. At Chanute, John Jr. and Kate left the train and caught the MK&T train south to the terminus in Red River County near Denison, Texas. From there, they traveled to an outlaw colony thought to be in the border region between Texas and New Mexico. They were not pursued as lawmen following outlaws into this region often never returned. One detective later claimed that he had traced the pair to the border where he had found that John Jr. had died of apoplexy. The elder benders did not leave the train at Humboldt but instead continued north to Kansas City where it is believed that they purchased tickets for St. Louis, Missouri. Several groups of vigilantes were formed to search for the benders. Many stories say that one vigilante group caught the benders and shot all of them but Kate, whom they burned alive. Another group claimed that they had caught the benders and lynched them before throwing their bodies into the river. Yet another claimed to have killed the benders during a gunfight and buried their bodies on the prairie but no one has ever claimed the $3,000 reward. The story of the Benders' escape spread, and the search continued on and off for the next 50 years. Often, two women traveling together were accused of being Kate Bender and her mother. In 1884, it was reported that a John Flickinger had committed suicide in Lake Michigan. Also, in 1884, an elderly man matching John Bender Sr.'s description was arrested in Montana for a murder committed near Salmon, Idaho, where the victim had been killed by a hammer blow to the head. A message requesting positive identification was sent to Cherryvale, but the suspect severed his foot to escape his leg irons and bled to death. By the time a deputy from Cherryvale arrived, Identification was impossible due to decomposition. Despite the lack of identification, the man's skull was displayed as that of Pa Bender in a Salmon Saloon until Prohibition forced its closure in 1920 and the skull disappeared. Whether John Flickinger was John Bender is still unknown. Several weeks after the discovery of the bodies, Addison Roach and his son-in-law, William Buxton, were arrested as accessories. In total, 12 men of bad repute in general would be arrested, including Brockman. All had been involved 
in disposing of the victim's stolen goods with Mitt Cherry, a member of the Vigilance Committee, implicated for forging a letter from one of the victims, informing the man's wife that he had arrived safely at his destination in Illinois. Brockman would be arrested again 23 years later for the rape and murder of his 18-year-old daughter. On October 31, 1889, it was reported that Miss Almaya Monroe and Miss Sarah Eliza Davis had been arrested in Niles, Michigan, often misreported as Detroit, several weeks earlier for larceny. They were released after being found not guilty, but were then immediately rearrested for the Bender murders. According to the Pittsburgh Dispatch, the daughter of one of the Bender's victims, Mrs. Frances E. McCann, had reported the pair to the authorities in early October after tracking them down. Mrs. McCann's story came from dreams about her father's murder which she discussed with Sarah Eliza. The woman's identities were later confirmed by two Osage Township witnesses from a tintype photograph. In mid-October, Deputy Sheriff Leroy Dick, the Osage Township trustee who had headed the search of the Bender property, arrived in Michigan and arrested the couple on October 30th, following their release on the larceny charges. Mrs. Monroe resisted, declaring that she would not be taken alive, but she was subdued by local deputies. Mrs. Davis claimed that Mrs. Monroe was Elvira Bender, but that she was not Kate, but her sister Sarah. She later signed an affidavit to that effect, while Monroe continued to deny the identification and in turn accused Sarah Eliza of being the real Kate Bender. Deputy Sheriff Dick, along with Mrs. McCann, escorted the pair to Oswego, Kansas, where seven members of a 13-member panel confirmed the identification and committed them for trial. Another of Mrs. Monroe's daughters, Mary Gardy, later provided an affidavit claiming that her mother, then Almira Shearer, under the name of Almira Marks, was serving two years in the Detroit House of Corrections in 1872 for the manslaughter of her daughter-in-law, Emily Mark. Records of the incarceration back up this affidavit. At her hearing, Mrs. Monroe denied any knowledge of Shearer or the manslaughter charge and remained incarcerated with her daughter. Originally scheduled for February 1890, the trial was held over to May. Mrs. Monroe now admitted that she had married a Mr. Shearer in 1872 and claimed she had previously denied it as she did not want the court to know that her name was Shearer at the time and that she had a conviction for manslaughter. Their attorney also produced a marriage certificate indicating that Mrs. Davis had been married in Michigan in 1872 at the time when several of the murders were committed. Eyewitness testimony was given that Mrs. Monroe was Elvira Bender. Judge Calvin dismissed Mary Gardee's affidavit as she was a 
chip off the old block. He found that other affidavits supporting Gardy's were sufficient proof that the woman could never be convicted, and he discharged them both. The affidavits and other papers are missing from the file in Labette County, so further examination is impossible. Several researchers question the ready acceptance of the affidavit's authenticity and suggest that the county was unwilling to accept the expense of boarding the two women for an extended period. While the two women were certainly criminals and liars, as their defense attorney admitted, the charges were weak and many people doubted their identification as the benders. Additionally, the older woman reportedly spoke with no accent, whereas Ma Bender struggled to speak English fluently. By including the recovered body parts not matched to the bodies found, the finds are speculated to represent the remains of more than 20 victims, except for Mackenzie and York who were buried in Independence, the Longcores who were buried in Montgomery County, and McCrotty who was buried in Parsons, Kansas. None of the other bodies were claimed, and they were reburied at the base of a small hill one mile southeast of the Bender's Orchard, one of several at the location now known as the Bender's Mountains. The search of the cabin resulted in the recovery of three hammers, a shoe hammer, a claw hammer, and a sledgehammer that appeared to match indentations in some of the skulls. These hammers were given to the Bender Museum in 1967 by the son of Leroy Dick, the Osage Township trustee who headed the search for the Bender property. The hammers were displayed at the Bender Museum in Cherryvale, Kansas from 1967 to 1978 when the site was acquired for a fire station. When attempts were made to relocate the museum, it became a point of controversy, some locals objecting to the town being known for the Bender murders. The Bender artifacts were eventually given to the Cherry Vale Museum, where they remain in a wall-mounted display case. A knife with a four-inch tapered blade was reportedly found hidden in a mantle clock in the Bender house by Colonel York. In 1923, it was donated to the Kansas Museum of History by York's wife, but is not on display. Still bearing reddish-brown stains on the blade, it can be seen upon request. A historical marker describing the Bender's crimes is located in the rest area at the junction of U.S. Route 400 and U.S. Route 169 north of Cherryvale. According to a news report from contemporary media, an unnamed man from Kansas City who had investigated the Bender family's house and the rumors of their deaths claimed that the Kelly family were the Benders. The man further elaborated that all of the stories of the latter's capture were made up, supposedly by a group of Confederates, who had also helped the Benders dispose of the murdered victims' horses and wagons. He pointed out that both families' M.O., family unit numbers, and other evidence proved that they are the same. The Ingalls family, made famous in the children's book by Laura Ingalls Wilder, 
and Little House on the Prairie television series lived near Independence, and Wilder mentioned the Bender family in her writing and speeches. In 1937, she gave a speech at a book fair, which was later transcribed and printed in the September 1978 Saturday Evening Post and in the 1988 book, A Little House Sampler. She mentioned stopping at the Bender's Inn, as well as recounting the rumors of the murders spreading through their community. She said her father joined in a vigilante hunt for the killers, and when he spoke of later searches, for them she recalled. At such times, Paul always said in a strange tone of finality, they will never be found. They were never found, and later I formed my own conclusions why. Some have cast doubt on the story, saying that Wilder would have been only four years old when her family moved from the area, and that the benders were exposed in 1873, two years after the Ingalls family left. Well, that is going to do it for today's episode. I do hope that everyone enjoyed the story. And if you did, could you please rate and review on Spotify and Apple Podcasts? A five-star rating really helps others to find the show, and I really want this show to grow. Don't forget to join us on Facebook, follow us on Instagram, and subscribe on YouTube. If you do enjoy the show, please consider helping to support the show by subscribing on Patreon. There's three tiers to choose from, $3, $5, and $10, and the monthly bonus episodes are available from the $5 tier. But once again, thank you everyone for listening, and make sure to keep your doors and windows locked, and stay ready for Ohio Unsolved.